Well, good morning. This is one of the Sundays I look forward to least of the year because it's in the middle of two spring breaks. It is the daylight savings chime change. It is, somebody raised this thing again um, for an adult. Um, it, it's, just, it's just one of my least favorite Sundays, but I decided I would find good in it. So this morning, instead of waking up at four like I normally do because of daylight savings time, I woke up at five. So as a miracle, I, sl- I slept an extra hour, right? Something like that. This is also Pi Day. Did you realize that? March 14th is Pi Day. 314 celebration of the irrational number Pi. And I read this morning that Pi has been figured to 22 trillion decimal po- uh, just numbers to the right of the decimal point, which begs the question, who has time to do that? Um, it is, it is uh, pi, as you know, is the, the number that we use that as a factor in the circumference of the circle. It's one of those constants in life, and it's why some of us love math, because it has these things that are just inscrutable, and yet they're so true. And, and one of the great things about math, whether you're postmodern or modern, you know that two plus two equals four. You know that pi is the same number for all cultures. It's just, it's just a very reassuring thing to those of us who love math because it's just so stinking predictable and right and true across all cultures. It's just a magnificent, magnificent fact. Um, I want to mention one thing about the Special Missions and uh, Outreach Fund. Um, uh, Kevin and and Bob did a great job this morning both announcing it, but uh, you who are newer to Grace, real quickly, we give to missions and outreach in three different ways at Grace. Our budget which is roughly $2.5 million, 10% comes off the top to missions and outreach. Every week, checks are written to people we support on a, and ministries we support on a monthly basis. For 45 uh, individuals plus a number of, of ministries. So that's off the top, 10%, by fiat from the elder board without any questions. Then secondly... Um, one of the line items in our budget for 135000 is what we call Grace for Generations. And Grace for Generations was actually the uh, amount of the mortgage on this building when we built it. When we paid it off, we said, we're just going to use that money for missions and outreach. And we use that for new startups. One of the things we found in the ministry world is very few people give to crazy ideas. And so we have given to crazy church plants and outreach opportunities and Dallas and around the world, and it's really unique, and it's one of the really exciting things to watch to see how God works. And we'll bring some of those latest grants before you soon so you can see who you're supporting. And then finally, the third bucket that comes for missions and outreach is the Special Missions and Outreach Fund, where individual needs are met, whether on the field in missions or locally, different initiatives. It's it's a third bucket so that if you add it all up, we give roughly 20% of all of all the money that's raised to missions and outreach. And that's because of our church's generosity and because we don't want it just to be about us. But I think it's important that you know that. And Kevin has a committee that heads up the outreach giving. Lucas has a committee that has uh, our team that heads up the missions giving. And I don't do much of anything because, you know, I'm old and leaving. So um, just thought that overview would be helpful to you as you look at it. Um, One of my favorite stories of my wife, and I actually know that she's in the room, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because by the time we get home, hopefully she will have cooled off. Um, 
One of my favorite stories on her is a number of years ago, we were having lunch with friends of ours. I can still remember the booth at the Chili's at Preston and LBJ where we were having it. And I said, oh, Julie, did you know that hmm, Mr. Hmm is going to join such and such nonprofit board? And, and she didn't know that. And she said, oh, did you tell him about the basket? <sighs> Panic ensued. That, that was one of those jokes that we had in our family that wasn't supposed to leave the house. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we all have those jokes that aren't supposed to leave the house. But as when you've worked in the nonprofit world as much as I have, well, there seems to be times when people going into the board meeting for nonprofits make decisions that they wouldn't typically make in other circumstances. So we thought maybe there was a basket they left their brains in on the way in. And, and, um, and my wife revealed the family secret by turning to this man and said, did, did you tell him about the basket? And I said, he said, what basket? I said, oh, it's nothing. She's being, you know. <laughs> and he said, no, what is the basket? I'm not paying for lunch. And well, I'm a pastor. You got to make them pay for lunch. So, you know, I, so finally I said, I told him why. I said, well, we've watched a lot of nonprofit boards and it seems at times as if they make decisions that you wonder if they put their brains in a basket on the way in. And he kind of went, huh. Um, but months later, I ran into him again and he said, tell Julie this week, I saw the basket. <laughs> I saw the basket. Because groups can make decisions that are, and sometimes it turns out they're good decisions, but, but this re, board, re, committees, boards, groups of people can make decisions that at times, and I've probably been a part of them. I'm not being, you know, I, but that sometimes decisions come out where you all think, where did they leave their brains? That's just crazy. And I think Christian ministries are particularly susceptible to it. And I'll tell you why. Because our decisions are more complicated than the world's decisions. Because the world operates strictly in the sphere of the natural. But the Christian ministry also operates in the sphere of the supernatural. And while all truth is God's truth, the, the spiritual truth and, and secular truth, if they're true, are true across both camps. But the reality is sometimes it's difficult to discern, right? Sometimes, for instance, in the secular world, sometimes if you were to say, well, I'm just going to trust God, the secular world would say, well, that's nuts. God's not sitting here, Right? Whereas we as believers understand that God has made certain promises and that he intervenes and therefore we can trust him. So that it, it creates this tension in this Christian ministry world of how do we make these decisions distinguishing between what you might call natural wisdom and supernatural wisdom. They don't contradict, but sometimes it's hard to know where they touch each other, right? And we all struggle with that. When, when do we trust God and wait on the Lord? And when do we, uh, what used to say, you know, one of the phrases you hear a lot is, is um, let go and let God. But I, when I, I taught at the seminary, one of my students said, yeah, but sometimes it's good to get God and get going, right? 
and, and, and knowing which one is right is very difficult to decide. And sometimes, sometimes, I think out of fear of making a mistake or maybe a little laziness, sometimes we hide behind that supernatural reality and, and make really foolish decisions. Let's just be honest. I've done it in my life personally, and I've seen organizations do it because it's just such an easy thing to do. We're in a series where we talk about being more like Jesus. And obviously, Jesus had the ability to make decisions in a way that we don't because he is the Son of God. But as we walk through his life, I'm trying, in the book of Luke, I'm trying to lead you in seeing examples he gives that it can inform our lives. And today, I'm going to talk about something you may have never heard a sermon on. But it's something about which I feel very strongly. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Um, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel... The chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who, gave, who died and left you in charge? Right? And Jesus replied, I will ask, uh, ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? The context is Jesus has cleansed the temple. Now, and these are the religious leaders of the community. And by the way, the temple is kind of their corporate headquarters. That is the world in which they walk. They, when they would walk into the court of the Gentiles of the temple, everyone would part because they, everyone knew these are the religious leaders. These were the grand poobahs of Judaism at that time. And Jesus dares to go into the temple and turn tables out and, and chase out vendors who are selling sacrificial animals and exchanging money. Money lenders. Now, I think part of the reason they're particularly offended is, is probably, most scholars believe, there was little money going under the table. Because the, the priest would have said, see, the Old Testament law required that the priest declared a sacrifice be de uh, declared blameless by a priest. Therefore, many have suggested, they said, why don't we move this in-house and then we'll declare them okay and they'll pay us some money, right? It'll go to the, uh, you know, the rabbinical retirement plan, um, which had made some bad investments in downtown Never mind. And, and uh, I'm sorry. Never mind. The, it was a joke about pension funds making bad investments in downtown Dallas. You with me, anybody? Um, I told you I woke up at four this morning, but it was really five, so it's so much better. So, the, the, so what you have is he's intruding on their space. And so they challenged him in front of one and said, who gave you the right to mess in our playground? How dare you step into our world? And part of what you see is them using their religious authority to protect their personal agendas, which, is, which has been a temptation throughout the history of the church. It still is today. It's true in all of our lives. We so easily can fall into the trap of confusing what's best for us with what's best for us the body of Christ. 
So they asked Jesus, and then he turns and asks them a question. I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say it's from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it's from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, on one level, you could say, why wouldn't Jesus just tell them the truth? He's committed to the truth. It's, we are always committed to the truth. The truth is always our friend, right? But Jesus knows their heart and knows that this truth is not what they're looking for. So he doesn't tell them a lie. He just doesn't answer the question. Instead, he asks them a question that will reveal their hearts because that's what the people need to say, see. So he asks John the Baptist, my cousin, Camel hair, leather belt, locusts and wild honey. I mentioned, I think there's a new restaurant in, in the Bay Area called Locusts and Wild Honey. But anyway, because we, you know, never mind. It was really early this morning when I got up. And, and it just sounds like something they'd eat in the Bay Area, right? Um, where was I? Why, how do you feel about John's baptism? Now, John, being the cousin of Jesus, was announced by the, the angel to his father Zechariah that he would be the one prophesied in Isaiah 40, the messenger who cried out in the wilderness, make way the ray of the Lord. So John is foreordained by the father to be the prophet who would fulfill the ancient prophecies of Jesus' coming. And these religious leaders supposedly are all about that, right? That would be what they were looking for as the Messiah to come. But the reality is that was no longer their concern. Their concern was their financial and, and uh, status in the world. And that's what mattered to them most. So Jesus said John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. It was, he called upon the people of Israel to turn back to the worship of Yahweh their God and repent of their sins. But the religious leaders didn't go because he was shaking up the world. Jesus said, was he a prophet or not? Well, they knew if, if they said he was a prophet, then Jesus would say, well, why didn't you get baptized? If, if you believed it was true, why didn't you submit to that reality? But if they said, we think he was a quack, they felt they knew that the people might stone them because they, the people believed John was a prophet. And so what Jesus has done is in a theological, theological chess match, he, he's put them in a box that's revealed their hearts and their real motivations to the people. So what do we learn from that? Sometimes, sometimes we need to be smart. Sometimes we need to be smart. Now, hear me. The wise thing will always be consistent with the good thing. But sometimes Christians, out of a desire to do the good thing, do a naive thing and not a smart thing. In the book of Proverbs, there's, there are different categories, and one of the categories is the simple. And the simple person is the one who has good intentions, 
but lacks wisdom. And what you see in the example of Jesus here is a remarkable wisdom based on his knowledge, not only of what is true, but of what the circumstances are around him so that he can reply with integrity, but yet win in the debate. And that's being good isn't all that's required of being a disciple. We are also called to be wise. That's why I love the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament because it reminds us that God's goodness is also wise. So having introduced the subject by showing you that that's what Jesus did, I want you to turn now to Luke chapter 16 where he instructs us on the same subject. Y'all with me? In spite of my silly jokes, everybody here? Okay. Luke 16, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager, or steward, was accused of wasting his positions, possessions, poor stewardship, bad management. So the owner called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager or a, or a steward any longer. And the manager said to himself, self, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. And I love this line. And I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. <laughs> it's just, that's pretty true. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Um, what we're seeing here is as he thinks through his circumstances, he decides, I'm going to solve my problem with stuff. Look at verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied, and the manager, manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450, cut it in half. And then he asked a second, how uh, much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied, and he told him, take your bill and make it 800, cut it 20%. The master commanded, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that what is gone, you'll welcome, be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, I got to admit to you, this is one of Jesus' parables that gets scholars a little twisted up because he seems to be commending a dishonest action. Um, so some have pointed out to the fact that in the Old Testament, the Jews were not allowed to charge other Jews interest. That, it was, that if they lended money, it should be interest-free. But there is evidence from extra-biblical literature that in the day of Jesus, they were doing uh, to each other what a tote-the-note lot does to cars. But believe it or not, one of my many jobs in my lifetime was manage a tote the note lot. But we didn't tote the note. But I was in the note. Anyway, the, what a tote the note lot does is rather than charge usurious interest rates, because the state of Texas limits how high an interest rate can be, they just jack the price up obscenely. So that, so that it appears as though the interest rate is, is appropriate, but a $2,000 car suddenly becomes a $4,000 car because they're selling to people who don't have any credit rating. And there are some that have suggested what is going on here is the Jews, because they're not allowed to charge interest, are, are jacking up those prices. And what the manager is doing is in the effort to do the right thing is discounting them back to what they should have been. I just don't believe that's it. 
I think he's a dishonest manager. And I think he's effectively stealing from his boss because his boss has already fired him. And I think what Jesus is doing is showing that even the dishonest man of the world is smart when it comes to advancing what matters to him. Um, we had a conversation, Ramon and I did. Ramon's a PhD student. He's, his wife is Raina, our, our new women's director. I called him Raul in the first uh, uh, service. I thought I'd call him Ramon just to keep him off balance this service. Um, he, he wrote a, a paper and argues that it's, it's from the lesser to the greater, and I think it is. If, if the world is smart, then how much more should we be smart? The lesser to the greater, a form of argument. I think, though, it goes even beyond that. I think it's horribly ironic. It's dripping with irony because what Jesus is saying is, here's a sinful man. And he's, he's smarter than we are sometimes. Shouldn't we be smart? And it is, to Ramon's point, absolutely true. But, but that irony is biting in making the point that Jesus is, is elevating this evil guy and evil actions, but pointing out that at least he knows how to play by his rules better than we know how to play by our rules. What are his rules? Whatever works for him. That's all that matters. He wasn't a good steward because he wasn't motivated by what was best for his boss. And, and when he gets fired, he's not motivated by treating him fairly. He's only motivated by what helps himself. He lives consistently with the, and wisely within his rules. But what Jesus is calling you and me to do is be wise within the context of our rules just as he was with the religious leaders. Um, notice what the master says. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this word are more, world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so when it's gone, you'll be welcome and be eternal together. Interesting, the word shrewd is also used in Matthew 10, 16, which is kind of my summary verse for all of this. Jesus said, I'm sending you, the disciples, out like sheep among the wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd, same word, as snakes, and as innocent as doves. The, the parameters in which we are called to live is to be innocent and pure according to the rules of our game, but also smart and shrewd and not naive, which is why gaining wisdom over time is so incredibly important and so highly valued in Scripture that, <coughs> excuse me, that, that shrewdness, wisdom comes from time. And Jesus commends him. I've got to point out something that I saw literally last night as I was looking at this again. Uh, notice what Jesus says to use your wealth to do, make friends. What did the Father do for us? <coughs> Excuse me. The Father you took the most precious thing in his possession, his son's life, and spent it so that we could be friends of God again. The Father illustrates this reality even in our lives because he takes that which is most precious 
the life of his son. And, and his son offers up his life as a sacrifice so, to us so that all who trust in his son, have faith in him, can be reunited, reconciled, is the biblical term, in friendship to God. See, all of these great principles are illustrated by God himself. He finishes the passage by expanding on the idea, uh, idea of stewardship. Verse 10 through Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people highly value is detestable in God's sight. Jesus takes this as an illustration of, of that principle of stewardship, that how we manage anything is a reflection of our hearts. And if, it, if we fail with the small, we will also fail with the big. And, and obviously in the context, he's speaking of worldly wealth. But can I give you another illustration where it's true? If you fail in inconsequential relationships, if you treat the waiter at a restaurant in a way that's less than dignity, why would you be trusted to treat people that were more important to you with dignity when it wasn't self-serving? See how this principle follows through all of life? See, we're expected to be smart because everything we have, whether it's our relationships, our wealth, our health, our good looks, whatever it is, is a gift that's been given to us to live as stewards before God. And so therefore, part of our faithfulness is not only to follow his rules, be obedient not sacrifice integrity, obviously, but also to be wise, to be smart with them. Because we have the privileges of serving him. So there's no room for the basket, right? Just, just being well-intended is not enough. We have a responsibility as followers of Christ to to do the hard work of looking for the wise solution, not just the integrity solution. To be smart. Because Jesus was. You know, you, when you follow his life, it's just amazing. Uh, the more I read the Gospels, the more I'm aware of how everything he said, every circumstance in which he found himself, every part of his life was managed by him to ensure that the mission that God gave him was accomplished perfectly. In spite of the fact that all the leaders of the world around him wanted to undermine what he was trying to do. And I think he calls us to do the same. To be wise. To be effective. Because we're stewards of the almighty God. And that makes whatever stewardship we have incredibly important.
Please pray with me. Father, we confess that sometimes we're naive and we make mistakes and you give us the chance to learn and sometimes we're foolish or lazy or don't do the hard work of being smart and wise in our affairs with the world around us and with each other. Lord, I pray that we would learn from the example to be wise in what we do because all that we do is in serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.